Thanks for pressing play. Homelessness is a daunting, heartbreaking, and complex problem. There are currently about half a million Americans experiencing homelessness today. And in California, where I live, we have about 160,000 people suffering from homelessness now. Um, So today, on this episode, let's dig into what we can do to make a difference. With us are two of the authors of a powerful new book called How 10 Global Cities Take on Homelessness, Innovations That Work. Linda Gibbs served as Deputy Mayor for Health and Human Services for New York City from 2005 to 2013 during the Bloomberg administration. During her tenure, New York City was the only top 20 city in America whose poverty rate did not rise, while the rest of the nation increased a horrible 28%. Today, Linda is a principal at Bloomberg Associates, uh, which is a philanthropic consulting arm of Michael Bloomberg's uh, nonprofit organization. And they work with cities globally to make a difference, particularly in areas of homelessness. Also with us is Muzzy Rosenblatt, and Muzzy is the CEO of BRC, a nonprofit that has worked for 50 years to provide housing and treatment services to homeless adults in New York City. It's safe to say that Linda and Muzzy are definitely experts in grappling with homelessness. The insights they share in the dialogue that you're about to hear are very powerful. They come from their new book, which is deeply researched, which is based on, uh, frankly, two extraordinary careers dedicated to solving this issue. Now, this episode will touch the heart of anybody who cares about changing the future for people experiencing homelessness. Now, speaking of that, if you've ever been homeless, of course, you know what it feels like. I have not, and I don't. And if you've ever loved someone who's been homeless, you know how that feels. And in that case, I do fit in. You see, I have a brother from another mother whose name is Jamie J. And Jamie has partnered with me for years on the creation of this podcast, Lockhead.com, and virtually all elements of our digital presence. And Jamie is a U.S. vet, a legendary entrepreneur and one of the kindest and most successful men that I know. And Jamie has been homeless. Now, he's got a new book on entrepreneurship coming out soon called Quit Repeating Yourself. And uh, you'll get to meet him on an episode of Follow Your Difference soon. And we're going to talk about his personal journey. You're listening to Christopher Lockett, Follow Your Different. Uh, Visit netsuite.com slash different today for a free product tour of the number one cloud ERP system, netsuite.com slash different. My friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two and the letter E. My friends at HalloApp are creating the world's first real relationship network. Visit halloapp.com today and get real. And speaking of getting real, why not go to lockhead.com and check out Category Pirates? It's sort of like Harvard Business Review if it was written for and by pirates. Now, hey ho, let's go. Well, Linda and Muzzy, it's wonderful to meet you. Thank you so much for your time. 
great. It's great to be here with you. Now, Muzzy, you were about to tell a story. What, what story did you want to tell? About your job interview or something? You you took some curiosity about my my name, as if it was some something unusual or. Uh, uh, but that is true. It is my nickname. It was given to me at birth, and I was um, telling you the story about uh, when I went for my first job interview, my my, my first jacket job interview, not uh, not when I was a waiter, and um, so uh, I'd gone through a litany of these kind of like uh, initial interviews, and I finally was meeting the man who runs the office and, uh, you know, just kind of to kick the tires, I guess. And so I went in and sat down, it was, I don't know, 22, 23 and, uh, $18,000 a year job. And, uh, he says, um, so why do they call you buzzy? Which is a question I get all the time, like I got from you. And I said, uh, so why do they call you Bob? <laughs> And he, got a, he gave me this look <laughs> like you, you impudent punk. Yeah, so you're not getting that job. Right, right. And he said, look, I, I can either admire your, your, your confidence and your assertiveness, or I can think that you're a disrespectful, unmanageable waste of my time. I'll assume the former, and if I find out it's the latter, I'll fire you. And I got the job. Um, and it was the start of a great career in city government. It's how I met Linda. Eventually, that was not with Linda. It was the guy's name is actually Bob, and um, and we're still um, friends. He's retired. Um, great guy, great mentor, a great teacher. I'm grateful for that opportunity because I was an impudent young punk who thought I had all the answers. And and what I've realized is I know a lot of questions, um, and I love trying to find the answers. Um, and that's been a great journey that Linda and I have been on again for, for decades, well before this book, um, as colleagues in government and then as colleagues doing this work in a more global setting. How'd you get your name, Chris? Uh, my mother and father gave me this name. <laughs> and I, I assume that's what you mean when you yeah. say that's how you got the name Muzzy, right? Exactly. That's exactly the story. Yeah. Um, the cool thing about it, you know, a, a thread, a thread that runs through my life and my work is this idea of the, um, the Delta between better and different and the difference between fitting in and standing out. And so from a pure sort of follow your different point of view from a pure, uh, if you, if you think about marketing, which has been, uh, my professional life, right. Owning something, right. There are not that many muzzies around. So you probably do pretty well on Google searches and stuff like that. Well, so there's one other muzzy. He's a, a green furry uh, alien from outer space that eats clocks that the BBC uses to, uh, and I want royalties on this now, because uh, probably better than the book, um, that uh, that the BBC uses to teach young kids foreign languages. And there's like all this marketing. Our children love muzzy, which, you know, kind of gets me under the pedophile radar. Very different muzzy. Um, but to your point about owning your different, I do think, and it's actually an obscure word in English which means confused. And, and I very much own that um, to my point about not having the answers and asking the questions. I think to some extent, having, having such a different name and all the, the crap I got as a kid with it and then trying to figure out, you know, do I want to be different and, you know, not really wanting to stand out, not always wanting to do that, uh, just owning it. And, um, and, and I think it's, allowed me to be a little bit more reverent than, uh, than definitely I was raised. So, so do you think it affected, uh, your personality? You think if you'd been named, I don't know, Steve or Dave or 
something like that, your personality would be different a little bit? Well, I was born Lawrence. That is my given name. I've revealed that now. That is a very valuable piece of information. Um, I might ask you to edit that. But um, but uh, uh, yeah, definitely. Something has to explain the character. I don't know what it is. Yeah, I'm going with Muzzy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Trust her. She knows. She knows me better than I know. Well, I'm glad I understand the Muzzy background. I, I'm stoked about that. <laughs> Now, uh, first, first off, let me just say, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for writing this book. And I say this a lot about books that I love, um, so I want to say it to you too. Um, I've been waiting much of my adult life for you to write this book, so I'm really glad you got around to doing it. <laughs> Why is that? I have said for a long time, Muzzy, uh, about the homelessness problem. Why the fuck can't we solve this? Why can't we get some of the smartest people in the world, in government, in industry, in social services, in, 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 in the medical profession, in, in, in the wellness world, in all the worlds that this touches, the addiction world, all, all of the worlds where this seems to touch, get them together and say, how do we solve this problem? Can we try stuff? Can we experiment? Can we learn? Can we fail? Can we try different stuff and, and, and deal with this? And it has, I live in a place, Santa Cruz, California, where the homeless problem is extraordinary and painful and visible every day. And it's one of these things that everybody talks about and nothing ever changes. And so I know that's a long answer to your question, Muzzy, but I have been waiting for smart people. I mean, there's four authors on this book, and it's clear that your book represents the work of a lot of other colleagues and so forth, right? I mean, this you're representing a huge body of smart people who are banging what seems to me pretty hard on this problem. And so this is the book I've been waiting for. You know, and, and what I would say is that it doesn't really take brilliant people. Um, it's it, We know what to do. I mean, that was the thing that really struck us as we started working, you know, one city, then the next um, in our in our business, our, our job is to help mayors. Mayors ask us what we want, um, what they want us to work on. And overwhelmingly in the social services area, the mayors kept asking us for help on this homeless issue. And and the assumption is that, you know, we need that brilliant new idea. Like, what is, what is it that nobody has figured out before? And come and tell us what it is, because we have to fix this. And the reality is that the issue is the same in city after city after city. And it's um, it's 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 really hard to do, but it's not that complicated. We we know what the practices are. We actually have good evidence around what can prevent homelessness. We have good evidence about what can uh, help somebody who is homeless end their homelessness pretty quickly, and we have good evidence about what will help keep people housed. The reality is that it requires resources. You have to have the, the dollars to put into those programs that can help people. And the harder part, quite frankly, is it requires people who work in many different organizations, in many different silos, at different levels of government. It requires that they all work together like a well-oiled machine. And the biggest problem you know, it is that these different systems, they all have their flaws. And many of the systems who have to be working together to fix the problem are the very systems that generate the problem. And so 
getting them to the table and getting them all working together toward one unified objective is the biggest challenge by far. Yes, and I, I think that comes through loud and clear in your book, Linda. Now, I want, I'd love to get into all the aspects of this with you folks, but before we do, let me ask a question that uh, might sound offensive or upsetting, but I think maybe some people might have this question, and I just really wanted to ask you. Why do you think we should care about homeless? Why is this a problem that the three of us and anyone else who's not homeless should care about? Because if I take a, let's call it maybe a radical libertarian point of view, and um, hey man, my life is my life and your life is your life. And if for some reason that I have nothing to do with, you end up homeless, well, you know, that's, that's your life and you, you're on your own, man. And some people, some people would go further and say it's their choice. Let the, you know, if they want to sleep on the street, if they want to live on the street, why are you, you know, imposing your, you know, middle class, you know, values on them and forcing them to live a lifestyle that they don't want? And you know, I think I personally think, you know, both a number one on, you know, who in the who would really choose to live on the street. Right. And Muzzy, Muzzy has said this before. It's like you don't see any rich people choosing to leave them, live on the street. You know, they're people without resources. They're without jobs. They burned out all their bridges because of untreated mental illness or violence or whatever has just like, you know, all their friends and their family have really given up on them and systems have given up on them. And, you know, to, to pretend that they choose to be on the street, I think is is um, is kind of a, an, an, an act of um, forgiving ourselves for our systemic cultural wide faults. And then on that issue, um, you know, I think, I think we should care because, you know, what, what do we stand for as a community? If everybody is left to fend on their own and to do their best, it pretends that there is an equal ability and equal opportunity of each individual and that it's all up to them and their their fault for becoming homeless and the reality is that's not true we live in a you know in many ways deeply flawed society and we have to do better and we have to address the consequences of those flaws and it's incumbent on us you know what we we need to fix those we need to fix the flaws and we need to be committed to the longer term reforms but we also have to address the faults now while we focus on those longer-term strategies. And I, and I agree uh, with everything that Linda said, but that I also recognize that just because I think and Linda thinks, we think everybody should care um, uh, for those reasons. We know everybody won't care for those reasons. And I'm not happy about that, but I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm not in the mission of trying to get people uh, who can't emote to emote. Um, and, and I know there are people who just don't have that warmth in their heart and that, cons- that, that genuine uh, kind of concern for the welfare of another at no cost. And, 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 and that's okay. I mean, even some of the greatest spiritual writers, like Maimonides said, you know, there's eight levels of, of giving. Not everybody gives just out of the goodness of caring for somebody else. For some, it's a contractual relationship. It's a quid pro quo. You know, I'll give to NPR if I get a up, you know, but I got to get something in exchange. And that's okay. NPR is fine with that. And I'm fine with that. And I probably have an NPR mug somewhere because I didn't say no, keep them up. Um, but that said, I think even for the 
the self-interested uh, person that you were describing, which I don't think is you, um, there's a self-interested reason to care. Um, because I think, I know, we, we run it at, at my organization, VRC, uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, outreach programs to help people, uh, motivate people, encourage people, educate people to come in, but not force them. Uh, largest in New York City, probably largest in the country. Um, but, you know, a lot of people just say, I don't want to see these people. It's, I can't run my business if, if, if this quote-unquote bum is outside my building. Come get rid of him. That may be their motivation. It's not mine. Um, but so to a degree, they care. Um, they care if they think that seeing people on the street makes them unsafe. Uh, and I, I hear that a lot. You know, I'm, I'm afraid to walk down the street. I'm afraid for my children coming home. Um, I try to educate people why somebody who's as vulnerable as the people we work with uh, people experiencing homelessness. And I appreciate the way you articulated that because I don't think there are homeless people. I think it's a situation that people experience. But I get that not everybody has the experience that Linda and I have or that with the stories we tell in the city of so many who do this work, more don't do the work and don't understand it, but they care. And even if their their concern is more self-interested, that's a reason to care. Our cities will thrive better if people aren't choosing the streets as their home, our economies and our businesses will do better uh, if there aren't. And and then the cost, the cost of homelessness that we as taxpayers, so unless you've got your account in the Caymans, you're paying taxes. You want to pay taxes. You believe in that or, you know, go be a Russian oligarch. Um, and so but you want to know you're getting something from it. And the the contract between the taxpayer and government is not always the most cost effective. And we talk about that, that the, the cost of this, for the very reasons that Linda articulated, that each of these systems is contributing to homelessness, but they're not accountable for it. And so they wind up creating costs that they could have done such a better job to diminish had they planned for it. You know, we, I remember you know, Linda was commissioner of homeless services. I was commissioner of homeless services in New York City. Um, I remember being at the uh, entry, the intake center, for the men's single men's uh, system, single adult men, and men would arrive, uh, walk through the door with these letters from the state division of parole. They had been paroled from prison, Um, you know, very much in the era of mass incarceration. They aren't all violent people. Um, In fact, most of them are not. Um, Very many of them got caught up in the in the in the the crazy uh, drug laws that we had that, that got them incarcerated because they were just low-level people in a high, big syndicate. Um, and so after 10 years in prison and they get paroled, um, which it happens to almost everybody, um, so that's a planned event. Your parole date's been set. And they get these Xerox letters that they've been Xerox so many times, the lines on the paper aren't even straight anymore. You know, where they've like the name of the executive or the, the commissioner of parole, like he's dead by. And it says, go to the men's intake center on 30th Street and 1st Avenue in New York City. That's the discharge plan. Go become homeless. And that just drives up a huge cost, right? Or when we, you know, uh, another great book, uh, Peter Edelman, um, Poverty is Not a Crime, right? When we uh, create fines for people who don't pay their credit card bills or don't pay their traffic uh, tickets because they're poor and they're living hand to mouth. And then they wind up going to jail and losing their job because 
They didn't pay a civil fine. They're not criminals, but it criminalizes a civil fine and they lose their job. And then because they're living hand to mouth and they may not have a lease. I hate to interrupt you, but we do live in a world where somebody could go to jail for not paying a parking ticket. Yeah. And then lose their job and then lose their home and become homeless. And we're paying for that. They're not paying for it. They're poor. We're paying for it. And it shows. So it shows the complexity, right? You've got to get those upstream agencies the people who are either le- um, failing in the way that they provide service or failing when they discharge people to help them to move to a decent place to live instead of sending them to shelter. You've got to get them to own the problem and to be part of the solution. And so that's, you know, that doesn't require, you know, a brain surgeon to, to understand that. But it's really, really hard to do and to, um, to get people to commit to that, to embrace it, to expand their obligations toward the individuals they serve for the consequences when they leave their systems and to keep them involved. So not only to say, okay, I get it, I'll do it, but then you got to keep coming back to the table over and over and over again. And you basically, you can't really ever leave because anytime that you have a flaw and if that person is not at the table, then you don't have the partner that you need to solve the problem. And so that's, that's, that is the challenge. We, you know, we, we do work in, in, um, in California, Los Angeles, there's, you know, fantastic people there who are so committed to this. They've worked hard. They've developed some really remarkable programs, but the magnitude of the problem is great. And, you know, and this gets to the, to the other half, which is, you know, the, also not easy is, you know, this is a question of the magnitude of the resources. You know, do you have enough services to meet the need? And in places like LA, like San Francisco, you know, like, like Seattle, like Portland, you know, up and down the, the West Coast, you know, the number of people compared to the population who, who were on the street is just so significant that if you're going to tackle it, it requires a huge in, infusion of investments up front. And we can talk about this later, but I think actually what's going on in our country right now creates an opportunity for that with the American um, Rescue Fund mm-hmm. and um, and the dollars that are coming into localities, both for infrastructure, um, but as well as for services. And so the, the there there is an opportunity ahead of people right now to learn from a lot of the remarkable things they did during COVID to keep people safe, to keep people who were on the street safe, um, to keep people who were in shelters safe. What just an incredible amount of innovation that just broke loose. It was like all those things, people knew what to do. They just didn't have the urgency or the resources to make them happen. Huge number of great things. Now let's take them. Can we, can we maintain the sense of urgency and use those lessons and build on them and, you know, and have a really transformative period ahead of us that might make a dent in the problem. Right. Specific example for that, right, is New York City for the first time decided during the pandemic for a variety of reasons, the system needed to save money and it needed to be clean and cleanse itself every day to shut the New York City subways down every morning from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. Never happened before. And at the same time, the, the transit system in the city had genuine concern. Where will the people who've been sleeping on the subways go? 
because uh, the subways became a sh- had been for a long time um, a shelter system. Uh, and I'll tell you how long a time in a minute. Um, but so all of a sudden it was like, so how do we do this well? How do we do this humanely? And how do we do it even selfishly for the transit system? If all we do is throw them out at 1 a.m. and they just hang out outside the subways, they're going to come right back at 5 a.m. and be riding it all through rush hour when we're trying to get people back and feeling safe on the train. So even if we clean them, if people experiencing homelessness come back, we've accomplished nothing. So we said, all right, well, we do the work. We know the people. We know they'll go somewhere to Linda's point if we create the places that they want. I look at them, right? You talked about marketing. This is all about marketing. They have choice. They are customers, right? And, and this is, Linda and I did this great innovation. We talk about it in the book called The Safe Haven. It's a very different approach to housing, transitional housing for people who have chosen to live on the streets, who have chosen it in New York, in a city that has a right to shelter. They chose to not exercise that right, but live on the streets. And so Mayor Bloomberg and Linda uh, challenged me and we were, Linda and I worked together to come up with this model where we went out and we talked to the customer and said, what do you want? I mean, think about it in, in, in the world you worked in, right? I mean, Apple would just say, you know, if we could create the thing that everybody would buy, oh my God, genius, right? And why would we, the, the attitude that, that even I, as a, you know, I'm a recovering bureaucrat, um, was, oh, you know, we're the government. We got it all figured out, right? We're, we've got a right to shelter. Shame on you if you don't use it, right? So instead, it was like, no, there is this market here. How do we corner it? And people said, look, I want to bet, but I don't want to have to get sober for it. I don't want to have to be told I've got to take my meds to get it. Then I'll stay out here. Um, now, there were places they could go without having to get sober, but they'd sleep in a chair. I don't want to sleep in a chair. So we said, all right, we'll give you what you want with, with very few rules. Just it's got to be safe. You can't bring the drugs in. You can't hurt anybody or hurt yourself. And they came in droves. They came in droves. We created what the customers wanted. And then we just took that to another level during the pandemic when people said, all right, I don't just want that safe haven. I want a private room. And we said, okay. We'll give you a private room. In fact, in doing it, we actually saved the YMCA of New York because no one was traveling. The Y had all these rooms and nobody to rent them to. And we had all these people who wanted a room, but no place to go. And so we were able to take this moment that Linda was describing, and it didn't take rocket science. Like she said, we know what to do. If we just listen to our customer and they ask for something reasonable, give the customer what they want. And we did. And we moved 1,200 people. And they're still in. Very few have dropped back out. Subways are running 24-7 now. I was out early morning the other day. There are a few people there. Yeah, there are a few people who haven't come in. There's no solution that's perfect. But oh, my God, it is so different than it was a year ago. Fascinating. Thank you both for all of that. So let me see if I can synthesize a little bit here. So why I should care is first, uh, maybe call it a core values issue. Maybe I'm somebody who says, at some level, if we all thought we were our sister or our brother's keeper, we'd have a better world. So I'm going to have an orientation to that, particularly if I'm somebody who's uh, enjoyed the successes and the opportunities presented by the United States, that I'm going to have that mindset. It's a core value. Yes, that, that, 
That's part of the motivation. And then the next part of the motivation is an economic one. And I think I heard a, a few dimensions on the economic one. One is there's a real cost to a taxpayer in dealing with all of the various homeless services, whether it's the police dealing with something or the funding of other programs and services uh, in a place like New York, where there's a right to shelter. I, I assume New York um, taxpayers pay for those facilities and, and services. So if we care for these folks in some way at some level, uh, it reduces the burden actually over time for taxpayers. That's an argument you're making. Yes. Yeah. And you, you have data to back that up. And then the other part of the economic one is, um, you know what, if there's a homeless person sleeping outside of my business, or as has been the case in San Francisco for far too long, there's human feces in front of some of the greatest companies that have ever existed, and they're in front of their front lobbies, that these things are not good for business, they're not good for tourism, and so whether it's cost to taxpayer around homeless services or cost to businesses or industry um, because of the existence of these folks living the way that they do, there's a big economic argument here. So there's a social core values argument and there's an economic argument that's multidimensional. Is that sort of what I heard you say? Yeah, it's, it's quality of life. It's, you know, um, you both want to live in a, in a world that treats every human being with dignity and respect and you you want to you want to know that you are supporting programs and strategies that that you know that that you're not creating those problems and you're solving them when they exist and you also don't want to be surrounded by the manifestation of the failure to do that just in terms of your 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 own enjoyment of of your home and your community and the people in your community and you know there's you know parks that have been taken over as encampments are no longer parks available to you to you know to to sit and read a book or to to take your kids to to play in the playground and you know so the it's the the quality of life issue is a very real one and it's not i don't i don't fault or blame anybody who um who wants to be able to have the uh, you know free enjoyment of the public spaces in their cities i think they have a right to that so everything you said, everything Linda said, but, you know, some people may, and some people do, not may, they do. They say, you know, well, just lock them up. You know, if, if they're behaving that way, if they're crapping in the street, you know, well, that's a crime, lock them up. You know, that's expensive and it's not a solution. They come back. Um, and so the notion of criminalizing it, that somehow, you know, it's just about enforcing law and order and social order, um, that isn't a solution and it's a huge cost. So, you know, that it's, it's got to be done with humanity and compassion, not just because, you know, uh, maybe we have that inner core value, like you said. It's got to be done with humanity and compassion because it's the only way it works. Yes. Now, as I think about your book, uh, this, this cartoon, I think, that you put in on page 29 is great. Sort of illustrates drug addiction, PTSD, mental illness, domestic violence, et cetera, et cetera. And then these two characters saying, if only the homeless problem was about being homeless. And so there's one key theme that pounds through in your book, at least to me, which is this is a very multi dimensional, complex problem. Uh, you can break it down, it's not complex in terms of being able to understand the components. But the way they all sort of feather or knit together, um, it, it, it's not a one problem. 
And then the other sort of big idea that, uh, or at least one of the other big ideas that pounds home in your book, and you mentioned it earlier, uh, Linda, is, is it is a multi-system, multi-agency problem. It, the police are involved and the hospitals are involved and the, you know, the, the, the mental uh, health community and so forth and so on. And, and so in those systems, I think what I hear you say in the book is this sort of, and again, if this is an oversimplification, please educate me, but there's two problems. One, some of those systems are not tuned to dealing with this per the jail discussion you just had, Muzzy. You know, it's insane to think that somebody who's been in prison for uh, even a short period of time, um, but certainly a long period of time is going to come out, be able to get a job, find somewhere to live and begin to build a life without some kind of a effing plan. And, and probably some kind of support to your point earlier, I forget which one of you said it, a lot of them, their families have given up on them, right? So it's not like they're going to, they're unlikely to be getting a lot of help. So, so, so in this case, the jail is not providing that, I don't know what you'd call it, but that success service on the way out. So, so there's a problem inside the system. But then the other thing that just comes screaming through in your work is, there's a huge problem in the sharing, collaboration, and handoffs intersystem. And is this fundamentally why very few places have been able to crack the code on this? And you know, there's I'm gonna add another one in before we go there. The other one is is that the issue of homelessness is homeless. There's no federal agency responsible for homelessness. There's no state agency responsible for homelessness. And with the exception of New York City, you know, there's, there's no local agencies responsible for addressing the needs of people who are homeless, right? And so, and then, so no one owns it. And now this is really, it's interesting because it's different. Uh, it's different and different. We, we worked in Europe, so in, in um, the UK and Paris and, and Greece, and we worked in Latin America, Mexico City, Bogota, and, you know, and, um, and Lima. And it's, you know, it's a little different in different places. And I can come back to that. But I think for the most part, people, people would say that there is, there is no one governmental entity upon uh, who, who is fundamentally responsible, who says, that's my job and I'm going to pull everybody else together. But it happens on the streets of the city and the mayors are always the one held accountable. And, and sometimes we know, like it's, you know, like the subways, it's like mayor de Blasio fix the subways in New York. And, you know, he'll say, it's not, you know, Hey, not my job. You know, it's like, people don't understand that they're not run by the city of New York. And so, but it's a, over and over and over again that we saw that everywhere, that the, the residents of the city expect the mayor to fix the problem. That is, that is something that is just an, a, a, an apparent issue in their day-to-day -day life. And so it kind of defaults to the mayor. And so, you know, some mayors will step up and embrace it. And um, some mayors run, like Anne Hidalgo in Paris ran on the agenda of addressing homelessness in Paris. Some mayors don't want to get anywhere near it. If I touch it, I own it. So they don't want to touch it because then they own it. And so it really, oftentimes, basically, I think what mayors um, do find that if they don't embrace it from the get-go, it's just going to hound them. And so better to grab it, better to 
to you know to um, to develop your agenda, better to use the leadership that mayors have to bring all those folks together. Um, uh, you know, mayors can have sometimes very narrow responsibility and very small budgets, but they're big personalities. They are like they are known. If any, you, know, you ask one, you know, anybody in a city. You know, who do you know? Who's your Congress member? Who's your council member? Who's your senator? You know, they're going to know their mayor. And those, and the mayors can use that, that power and that authority to bring people together, to be the leader, to solve kind of these gnarly problems. And, um, and so if you think about, so you, you pointed out a couple of features, right? That it's, you know, all of these feeder systems that are from, you know, outside the mayor's control, flaws in those systems, um, you know, so it's not just the different city agencies, but it's state, it's, and it's, uh, it's regional, it's county. Um, the mayors are in a pretty unique position to be able to use their authority to bring everybody to the table uh, to develop the solutions. You know, of course, I live in California, so let's maybe come here. So you were talking about L.A. Well, uh, Jason, our producer, was saying, hey, hey, ask them about what's going on in L.A. because Garcetti, it's a mess. And then we look at San Francisco and the current governor, um, Newsom, of course, was the mayor of San Francisco. And best I could tell, he did fuck all on homeless as the mayor of San Francisco, and best I could tell, as governor, not so much. Now, the one thing I will give him credit for, it did appear that um, the marshalling of resources to help uh, people experiencing homelessness around COVID was very well done. And we were terrified here in Santa Cruz uh, about what was going to happen uh, amongst uh, our homeless population and what that would mean for them, what that would mean for our healthcare system, and what would it would mean for the spread of COVID uh, here in our county. And those horror shows didn't play out the way um, we thought they might. And so uh, I, I, there's no black and white in any of this stuff. But that said, uh, Linda, why is it a Garcetti or uh, a Newsom seems to be fairly ineffective in in solving the problem? And when we do make progress, at least and you could call me the uneducated citizen, or the typical, or I don't know, the typical citizen, but um, the casual observer of this problem, it, it appears we make at best incremental improvements. And the reality is there's still shit on the streets of San Francisco and L.A. Well, so let's take let's take L.A. and um, and Mayor Garcetti. So he sits um, over the city of Los Angeles, which is part of the broader county. And the um, number of people who are, um, you know, it's um, there is a unique urban element here. Um, people who are homeless um, and who are in need of support and resources and community um, do have an attraction to a urban areas, to urban areas, to places where they can gather, where they can get support from other people. Uh, where they can get resources, where they can get food, you know, their urban areas do have uh, an attraction. And so the city of Los Angeles 
um, is really becomes um, a central point for the entire um, county and and really region. And then cities are left, you know, and everybody says, how come Eric Garcetti isn't solving this problem when in fact you have to bring in all of the um, the jurisdictions where and all the feeder systems. You know, when the, the jails, um, and the, when the prisons were depopulated in, in um, California, a wonderful, long overdue process, you know, like Muzzy shared earlier, there, it wasn't like there was a discharge plan for every single one of those people. And they wind up coming to, um, to urban centers and there isn't the investment, um, that is really required either at the state or the federal level back to the, you know, no one owns homelessness. There's no federal budget for homelessness. You know, there's a, there's some, you know, I'll call them boutique programs because in the magnitude of the federal government, the McKinney Vento dollars, which are the dollars that are distributed from the federal government out to um, localities to tackle homelessness, it's a drop in the bucket it's a drop in the bucket and you're just not going to be able to meet the level of need. And so it's about having, um, you know, both having the strategies and the solutions. And I would, I, you know, I could go on, glad to, glad to do it about things that both Governor Newsom and Mayor Garcetti did very effectively to deal with the issue. So they have it around COVID. Um, not even before. They're, they're, oh, really? they're, so I'm, I, like, I'm, yeah. I'm being unfair. I'm being unfair to them. You think on homelessness? Um, yes. Yeah, I, I think. Well, it's like everybody does. Yes. You know, everybody blames the mayors as if the mayors, you know, they're uh, like, tell yeah. me, tell me, educate me, please. And by the way, on just so you know, I'm, I'm a radical independent. I have some left views. I have some right views. And I, 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 this is a whole other conversation, of course, but I don't understand people's mindset where if you're of one stripe or the other, everything my team does is good and everything there. I don't understand how that works in people's minds. So, so I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. Uh, on the last election, uh, I voted for, um, the Democrat for president and the Republican for state Senate. So I, I, I don't know that I'm a typical yeah. American. So I, I just want you to know, I have no particular political mm -hmm. agenda. And if you mm -hmm. think I'm being unfair to Newsom or unfair to Garcetti, then I, I want to hear that. I think I think you I think you're doing what everybody does, which is that you see it's not solved, right? You know they 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 talk a good game, they run on these you know these platforms, but look, there's still homeless people here, and you know sometimes it's um it's hard to see the successes because the 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 number of new people coming to the street. I think the team in in L.A. told us. But any given year, they have 9,000 people um, coming new to the street who have never been on the street before. 9,000 a year in New York? In L.A. In L.A., excuse me. Yeah, yeah. But we actually have comparably the same who are becoming new, newly homeless in New York, but we've got other, other services in place. So we have the right to shelter, which, of course, everyone who's running for mayor says we shouldn't have shelters. L.A., San Francisco don't have a right to shelter. And there's a lot more there. And so to Linda's point, you know, it's easy to protest the steps of City Hall and assume because it's a local problem, right? I mean, we protested the Vietnam War on the steps of City Hall, like mayors could stop the war in Vietnam, they couldn't. But in some ways, this is on that scale, right? This is not something that LA created because then we wouldn't be writing a book about 10 global cities, we'd be writing a book about LA. And the fact that this is happening in city upon city upon city, you know, so when I was out there, uh, talking to Garcetti's people, 
uh, right after they had passed Measure H, which was the, uh, uh, or is it Triple H? I always get them confused. The bond issue to create housing, which was extraordinary. And not just extraordinary for the leadership of the, the state and the city, but that the citizens said, enough already, we will actually vote a dedicated bond issue to create housing to address the homelessness crisis in our state, in our city. And then they realized, you know what? It takes time. Building housing takes time. And so then they created uh, uh, what they call bridge housing, Measure H, the social services dollars, to kind of create something in the interim. So I went, they said, oh, we got one right here by City Hall. It's like, you know, two blocks from here. Of course, then we went down into the garage, got in the car to drive there, which totally freaked me out, but because I'm a New Yorker. And we went there and I went to this place. There's even a picture of it in the book, El Puente. And I'm like, holy shit, this is a safe haven. It's an L.A. version, right? It's got, you know, outdoor dining and, you know, you lawns and chairs and, you know, we don't do anything outdoors in New York. Um, but it was the same exact thing. In fact, they had an innovation that I want to copy. They have what they call these amnesty lockers where recognizing who we serve, who our customer is, that they're, many of them are opioid addicts, um, as are many people who aren't experiencing homelessness. Um, they give them a locker before they enter the gate where they can put their works, where they can put their drugs, things that are critical to their survival until they're ready to recover from addiction. So, and, and, and everybody was there. They were off the street. They were in El Puente. They were in this, uh, this safe haven or bridge housing, as they call it. And so to Linda's point, things are happening. But mayors can sometimes have boneheaded policies that contribute to homelessness, no doubt. And, and, and like you say, there, there's no uh, partisan uh, 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 vaccine for stupid political decisions. I think we should hurry that to market, don't you? <laughs> Absolutely. Then everyone would get back. If I could get vaccinated from politics, that would, I would, people would take that. Um, but, um, you know, it is, it, it is such a systemic problem on so many levels and, and, and truly a failure that we're beginning to see turn around on a, on a national level. And like you said in the cartoon, there are many contributors. But, you know, we have a housing policy in this country, a, fed, a national housing policy that basically has two pieces. If you buy a home, you get to write off the interest on your taxes. Um, and that generally goes to middle class and upper class folks. Eighty um, percent have incomes of 200K and above. And 200K is not a lot of money. I get that. And then we have public housing and, and, and rental vouchers, the federal Section 8 program. 80% of that goes to households who have incomes 50,000 and below. Now, here's the interesting thing. Only 25% of Americans, only one in four who are eligible for this housing, this for low-income people, get it because there's not enough money to fund it. Did you say only 25%, Muzzy? Only one in four. So of the people who are eligible, only one in four actually take advantage of it. Right. And, you know, people are going to debate where the eligibility criteria are. I'm not debating that. I'm just saying where it is, you know, there are waiting lists. In fact, New York. But it's not taking advantage. They they would be glad to take advantage. Right. It's just it's a it's, it's a capitated resource. It's a it's a limited There's a waiting list that is over a decade long in New York. And the waiting list at, some, at one point got so long that even though you are eligible, you couldn't sign up for it. Right. It's like Obamacare. Oh, but we run out of money. So you don't get it. Whereas the mortgage interest deduction, imagine if you were buying a home and you were thinking, okay, and I'm going to borrow money and I'm going to write it off, you know, get a little help on my taxes. And all of a sudden the banker came to you and said, oh, you know what? You're just a little late. We ran out of, 
you know, your accountant says you're too late. You don't get the write-off. Not only would you be pissed as hell, but you know who else would be pissed? The bankers would be pissed as hell because people stop buying homes and borrowing money. The National Association of Builders, the biggest lobbying group in America, they'd be pissed as hell because people stopped building homes and people weren't buying homes and people weren't borrowing money to buy the homes. So there'd be outrage, but there's no outrage. So in New York City, we have half a million households, not people, half a million households who spend more than half of what they earn, more than 50% of their income to pay the rent. Half a million spend more than half the household income on rent. On rent, right? Money that they then can't spend buying services for their children, books, education, going to after-school programs so that their kids have good activities to do, getting tutors so their kids can succeed in school and go to college, doing their own professional development so they can advance their career and earn more money because they're just busy paying the rent. So we don't invest in ways that we can solve this problem. And then when we see people living on our streets, we say to the mayor, what have you done? And the, the hopeful moment we're in right now on national policy is that President Biden is actually calling for full funding of everybody who is eligible. So basically going from funding 25% of those who are eligible for this subsidy to 100%. And that'll make a huge dent in our homelessness. Mayors can't do that. Mayors cannot create that kind of subsidy. They don't have the resources to do it. And if they did, everyone would come to their city and there wouldn't be enough. So in this $500 trillion package here, it it seems to keep going up by a trillion every time I crack open a, a newspaper. There is now money being put aside at the federal level mm-hmm. to drive uh, investment in uh, housing for the for people experiencing homelessness. This is in the the proposed legislation, not the one yes. that's already passed, but in the one um, the infrastructure package, and um, it would fully fund rental assistance. So it's not about homelessness; it's about helping low income people afford housing. And so um, it would provide rental assistance to be able to um, cover the cost of uh, rent in excess of 30% of your household income. And excuse my ignorance, but is there any discussion at the federal level? I mean, one of the things you mentioned is, is Canada, where I was originally born and, and grew up. And uh, I remember when Justin Trudeau's father was prime minister, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> sort of like having James Bond for your prime minister. If you remember Pierre Elliott Trudeau, he always had a flower in his lapel and he looked like he was about to. Very dapper guy. Yeah. Yes. He looked like he was about to save the world from Dr. Evil. But um, <laughs> uh, you, so you mentioned some of the things that uh, Justin Trudeau has done at the federal level. And so given all this change here in the United States in the Biden administration and these massive stimulations uh, or stimulus packages mm-hmm. uh, the, that are stimulating a lot of discussion, is there any is there any discussion at all at, at setting up a federal agency to deal with homelessness across the country? I have not heard that. No. You know, the HUD, the Housing and Urban Development, has traditionally taking the lead. There's an interagency council on homelessness, and I believe the HUD secretary is um, is chairing that. It, uh, the chair of that interagency council circulates across different cabinet secretaries. There is more resources, but there is not, there, there is no discussion 
But then, it, then interestingly, I don't know that there's discussion of much. There hasn't been a lot of reorganization um, proposals yeah. there with this administration, which I think is fine. You know, you know that that can be window dressing when the real work is like, what are the, where are the dollars, what are the policies, and what are the programs? I do think you know one thing. It's an, an interesting thing um, of the. Um, you know, what happened during, during COVID, there was a lot of new money for, um, as Muzzy mentioned, the single um, occupancy shelter, mostly by using, um, you know, like WISE and hotels. There was also an eviction moratorium. And so people who were unable to pay rent um, because of loss of income were um, protected from an eviction by their landlord. And so the the combination of those two things, we saw a big drop of the number of homeless families in in New York City during during COVID. So, and I assume that's what those policies were intended to do, right? <laughs> Just oh, to put a fine. You know, point it's on interesting. It. Yeah, and if you know, the public health argument was um, it was more for the fact that if you have to um, shelter in place and you're not supposed to be out and about. Um, there's nothing that's going to make you more out and about than an eviction. You have to have a place if you're going to shelter in place. You have to have a place, which was, you know, yeah, yeah. And so it was as much driven, you know, by the desire to ensure that people were not forced out of their homes and forced into public and into interaction to deal with that, but also by a recognition of the impact of the loss of jobs. But, you know, every time like when, you know, I don't I don't recall during the 2008 Great Recession when it was a, you know, horrific economy. I don't recall that we had an eviction moratorium at that point. So it was it was really this combination of the loss of jobs, but also the need. I mean, if you're if you're all of if every public message is, you know, everybody just stay put and don't move. You can't advance a public policy that forces people to move. Yes. And you think on balance. Many of the cities and, and, and counties and such in the United States did a pretty good job with the homeless population around this and around sort of holding back what could have been. For people who were housed, it, it prevented the new onset of, um, of homelessness by virtue of losing your existing house. So you really think we stopped a lot of homelessness Absolutely. that otherwise would have happened? There's no question about that in your minds. Seriously housed that were about to go over the edge were kept from going and so mm-hmm. so we always bitch about the stuff that we got wrong and we always point at politicians for things that we think they did wrong and i'm right i'm right at the front of that parade on a fairly regular basis but on this one you think we got it right we kept these people in their homes and as a result um uh, we also stopped what might have been a further spread of the disease you you do believe that exactly Yes, absolutely. And the use of the um, the hotels for the single folks who were on the street. But also an, another huge thing that had to happen was that dormitory style shelters could not afford the safe distancing. And so they had to depopulate shelters. And so a lot of folks who otherwise would have been pushed out of shelters onto the street were moved from shelters to hotels. And so it protected both people in shelters and by moving them to the hotels. If I remember correctly, uh, in California, we did a deal with, I think it was Motel 6. And there might have been a few others. And so there was a dual value here in Absolutely. that we got people off the streets and put them somewhere safe. And Motel 6, I don't know what the economics were, but it was better than zero. 
And so whether it was Motel 6 or any other facility that was a hotel, they got some revenue when it would have been zero. Uh, Am I reading this right? At my organization, we moved uh, six shelters into hotels, uh, many of which were independent. Some were chains, some were Marriott's, and some were Indies. Um, The Indies, we, you know, they were able to pay their mortgage. They They weren't making a profit, but they didn't lose their asset. It's huge. And not only that, the staff who worked in the hotels were still washing the linens and still running the physical plant, keeping the AC going. They kept their jobs. I mean, it, it, it has that multiplier effect that any strategic, smart, thought-through economic investment, right, using the M1 and getting the multiplier effect of it was definitely what happened here. That's awesome. And, and, and our government should be praised for executing, just like they should be praised with the drug companies um, for doing what they did on the development and distribution of the, uh, of the vaccine. Now, one of the big things I've been really wanting to ask is it seems to me that uh, a big part of the success that you point to when, when you two were running this agency in New York is the fact that there was an agency. And if that and New York was a pioneer here, yes, when, when you folks set up a responsible agency. Yeah, I'll just be honest. We were a pioneer under duress. We got sued um, by um, advocates who, this was 30 years ago now, maybe 40 years ago now, sued by advocates who um, outraged, rightly outraged by the, um, the depopulation of state mental health facilities. Everyone said mental health facilities, they're terrible things, they're awful, it's inhumane, close them down. And so the governor said, okay, I'm going to close them down. And, and how many of the people in, from those facilities had discharge plans to a home? Zero. So, right. And so everybody, um, so that was one of the most, one of the most significant factors to a um, huge mass homelessness in New York Linda, City. What, what year was that? Where, this happened like in the, the 70s, 70s, right? Late 70s. The 70s and 80s, the rise of pharmacology, yeah. everyone can live in the community. And lots of people benefited from it, no doubt. But there wasn't a plan. And so it was a survival of the fittest type of thing. And those who were the most vulnerable, the most weakest, who didn't have families to go back to, who didn't have advocates in their corner to look out for them, um, who had complex mental health challenges, who then began to self-medicate with drugs and alcohol as that became more liberalized and available. You know, it was it was horrific. And it's it's just and, and we're not learning from it. Right. We've mass incarceration is a horrible thing. Our mayor in New York de Blasio came in almost eight years ago, uh, preaching a very popular and I supported message around decriminalization of marijuana, decriminalization of social, you know, a a lot of really poverty crimes, same things that Peter Edelman writes about. And um, I I should be selling our own book, but I realize I'm not. Um, (laughs) uh, How 10 Global Cities Dig on Homelessness. That's our book. and and when he got elected on that platform, among available other things, now on Amazon.com. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I went to him and others went to him and said, look, it, it, good intention, but it's going to go awry if the people who sleep on Rikers Island, our city jail, which when he came in had a pop, a, a, an average nightly census of 12,000, now 4,000, if you don't create another place for them to sleep and not all of them were homeless going in, and not all of them didn't have homes to go to, but many did. Estimates were 38% of those living uh, who are being incarcerated had no uh, had no address, had no stable housing. Yeah. 
And so Let I me, just, yeah, go ahead. I just want to I want to come back. I don't want to lose the the thread though about the city's the fact of having a right to shelter. So it happened because of the litigation. It wasn't the city that caused the the increase in the number of people who were experiencing homelessness, but the city is the one that got sued. And there was a there was a lot. If I remember in your book, there's a, there was a lot of litigation in a whole bunch of different areas and uh, yeah, appointed and, in yeah, different parts of government. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Basically, um, the the state did a great job of covering their butt and getting out of the the litigation. The city wound up holding the bag. The city entered into a settlement, and now the budget of the um, the the dollars spent on homelessness in the city of New York, when you look at all in, not just the the budget of the Department of Homeless Services is over two billion billion. When you look at the other services, it goes um, to, from other agencies. It exceeds three billion dollars. Now we're a big city budget. We're it's a you know a hundred million a hundred billion dollar budget, but three billion dollars, and it gets to this issue of when the right when shelter is the only thing you have a right to, and you are when you have housing stability then you are going to use your right to shelter and then the investment the public dollars go disproportionately to shelter and to supporting people in their homelessness instead of to solutions so a lot of people right like rightly um avoid moving toward a right to shelter because then it will suck all the resources into providing shelter and take away from the resources that you have to provide housing. So there are people who think the right to shelter actually damages people experiencing homelessness. Is that, is that what I'm to take from that statement? If you, uh, if you had an unlimited budget and um, then you, there would be no problem, but there is no unlimited budget. You have limited resources. And when you have a right to shelter, it forces you, the, a right is a right. You can declare your right. It's not like come back next week and to get your right. Your right is now. If you have a right to shelter, you, it's when you are homeless, not, you know, not, you know, we'll, we'll put you on a list and get back to you later. So as a, as a city that A, developed an agency with a $2 billion budget, and B, established a quote-unquote right uh, in this regard. Is this something you would advocate for other cities? Should we do this in San Francisco? Should we do this in Santa Cruz? Should we do this in L.A.? Should we do this in Chicago? Should we do this in Paris? I would say I'm going to let I'm going to let Muzzy um, answer as well, because we, we may not have the, right, the same answer here. I, I would say not in the way that it operates in New York City. I think that that there is a fundamental human right to a degree of dignity in their life and that to let people live um, on the street without shelter and without the basic human needs met is just doesn't meet the, a standard of basic human dignity. And so... I really, I very strongly believe that we need systems that can give people the support that they need. And if they need emergency shelter, it should be there for them. But it shouldn't be the same. At the, right now, it's um, provided in a way that is um, that is flawed in yes. New York because of constraints that are placed on um, on the city by courts and by the the, the litigants and in, in the um, class action law- lawsuits. And so it, it, it makes the structure of the service um, ineffective, inefficient, 
Um, you know, I won't go so far. You know, some people will say it harms the homeless, those who are homeless. I wouldn't go that far, but a better system could work more effectively to help people better. So I, I, I agree entirely. We w- I would encourage every city to learn from what we did right and what we did wrong and build on what we've got. And there's a great, uh, to, to Linda's earlier point about the constraint. Um, we're both fans of this researcher at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm sure we cited numerous times in the book, Dennis Culhane. Um, you know, and he said the problem with kind of class action litigation to establish rights from a litigious perspective is that, like Linda said, you're always chasing the right. You're always trying to fulfill that legal obligation. So we think of rights as a floor, as a minimum, and then we build above it, but it really becomes the ceiling because we're always trying to just do the minimum because of the limitations and constraints. And so I think you take the way you take the right to shelter and advance it in ways that we haven't done well enough in New York, and I say it as a shelter operator, as I said before, and I believe in it, and I'll tell you why, is we see shelter as a quantity as, a, as opposed to a quality. You know, the number that gets quoted about homelessness a lot in New York is the number of people who sleep in a shelter in the shelter system on a given night. Well, that's basically the number of beds you have. It's not the number of people you serve, right? That's about, and I'm sorry, I'm going to start sounding like a business person again. What you want is something that isn't just about making the effort, but is making an impact. You want throughput. You want people to come in the front, get what they need as quickly as possible, get it so it sticks and it's well, and then to leave. You don't want them to stay. So 60,000 people a night, is it the same 60,000 every night? Or over the course of the year, are you actually having throughput and helping people? Or are people leaving because they're only coming when they're desperate and then they're going back to the street? So we've got to move from a system that we have in New York, which is driven by numbers quantitatively. I believe in data-driven strategies, but let's use data to achieve qualitative outcomes and know what they are. And so, you know, our shelters at my organization, Beers, what Tom, what's Tom cooking for dinner? Linda? Yeah, what's for what's Tom cooking for dinner over there, Linda? Is he a good Tom, cook? everybody wants to know what you're cooking for dinner. <laughs> he's, he's got this like really innocent look on his face. It's no, like, are you really, really going to complain that um, no, I don't I'm not going to complain? I want to know. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming over and it's a long drive there. But um, yeah. so, the average length of stay in, in, in a BRC, that's my organization shelter, is one third fewer days than the average in the city of an average city shelter. Average city shelter, uh, BRC was about 255 and the city was 365. So about 100, 110, 120 days fewer, right? Which means that I can serve more people in the same capacity as uh, more people than, than my next competitor. But the, the system, because it's driven by quantity, do we have enough beds? Are we meeting our legal mandates? Isn't, though it could, focus more on quality. The, what, what's lacking in New York that other cities should do is a standard of excellence that says we'll only work with organizations, and there are many, who know how to do this, who can do it well, who can create the environments that offer dignity, that offer respect, that offer places to heal and transform, and that achieve outcomes. Because making an effort, I'm sorry, it's not good enough if you're not making an impact. This isn't, you know, kindergarten or, or T-ball little league. This is the big leagues. These are people's lives that depend on us. And to just say any port in a storm is not good enough. And we know that again in New York because we have a right to shelter. And we have clients who say, unless I can get into a good shelter, I'm not coming. 
right? And they, they know where they want to go. It's almost like the issue of vouchers in education where why don't we let, and now I may, I may piss Linda off, I don't know, because uh, we don't write about education, but, but the principle is the same. Let people choose, give them a fair amount of autonomy to choose the place to go. Because we see that people, even with disability, even with some sort of psychological impairment or the impairment of substance use, they still know good from bad. They still know high quality from low quality. They know it about their drugs, that's for sure. Um, and let them choose the places to go that they want to go that actually are having impact. Then we could have a smaller shelter system. But the notion, you know, as Linda mentioned, that some advocates would say we shouldn't have shelters. Well, that's kind of like saying we shouldn't have hospitals, right? Because we don't want sick people, right? Well, what's in a hospital? Sick people. Those hospitals must suck because they're just full of sick people all the time. But they're not the same sick people, not at the good hospitals. They come there because they need a place to go and heal. Shit happens, and shit's always going to happen. No matter how much we make the systems better, we're still always going to need some shelters. But we should have good places where people can go for as brief a period of time as necessary to heal, transform, and then leave and succeed. And to say we shouldn't have shelters is like to say we shouldn't have hospitals, and that's just la-la. And so on that, what I was, um, what I was thinking, and, and Chris, this is a, is a good example of this, uh, you know, how this balance can play out. Um, one of the most successful cities right now in, in tackling this issue um, of homelessness is Houston, Texas. And so um, Texas is um, a southern, fairly conservative state. They do not have a deep safety net. Um, and while Houston now is a Democratic mayor, traditionally has been, it's also a Democratic county exec. That's only very recently. Um, it's it, it's within a state that, you know, for instance, hasn't um, exercised options under Obamacare to um, deepen the health care services for people. So it's a very it's a very there's there's um, local limitations on taxes that can be raised for services. This is, a, you know, the um, the the residents have in, in, imposed kind of austerity um, measures on on their governments. And so. In, in that setting, the mayor's office has one homeless czar. It's a single person. He has no staff, Mark Eichenbaum. And, um, and he has um, been successful in bringing together all of the partners who have any role or care or, or dollar you know, to contribute to this issue of addressing homelessness. He's brought them, he's created that table um, and using, you know, the mayor's um, authority, the mayor's voice, you know, you know, the mayor will step in. And so um, Mayor Turner will, you know, have press conferences, will rally, rally the crowd, rally the team. Um, but and they and they are very shelter averse. They don't they don't want to see shelters in their community. They want every dollar that comes to the table to be spent on housing. And you know, and, they, and and building housing, and so rental assistance and housing solutions, and by virtue of bringing all the all of the players together, committing to share knowledge about the individuals they serve, share 
the data around those individuals across providers so that everybody can team up with a single plan to help every individual instead of like, you know, addressing separate pieces of the, an individual's needs, coordinate services around the needs of the individual. And then they can collectively work on one shared set. He, I, I don't think he got the memo. He better be cooking um, a great meal for all that noise. <laughs> And now he's like doing this. Tell him we think he's a very handsome, talented man. I'm sorry. And he so is. It's totally it, fine. It's fun. It's part of the fun. It's part of the yes. fun of doing all this. When I was having dinner at Linda's place, he nearly burnt the house down. <laughs> so, so all of that is to say that a failure to have a right to shelter doesn't mean that you don't care about the homeless. And, and it is a, you know, there it's, I, by bringing people together, it's, it's real, it's the hard work of getting everybody um, to the table and committing to collectively act, you know, putting sometimes their own self-interest behind as institutions and organizations, um, because the collective purpose of providing the best services and solving these, these critical problems is more compelling than any narrow interest any one of the, or their organizations have. And so, the places that solve, that can solve homelessness, and this book, we, we try to create as, as many examples to show you that it is, in fact, possible, but it's where, um, where egos get left at the door and people commit to do the hard work because they believe that that's the right thing to do. And at the core of what I think you're recommending is, is this um, each service or system, depending on how you want to think about it, has to think about. Uh, the final piece of this when they get released from jail or whatever the final piece is for them. What's a success plan when somebody is no longer uh, using the service, if I could maybe put it that way. Uh, and then the second one is whether it's a department or a czar, like, like in the business world, if you want to get something done, there has to be a decider. And there has to be somebody who's focused on this. And in Houston, it's one person with the support of the mayor. And I'm sure he must be a pretty extraordinary person to bring everybody together. Um, and in New York, it's a giant department. So the, there's a spectrum here of how you might address the answer, just like there's a spectrum of do we or don't we need shelters? Maybe we do, but in Houston, they try not to. Maybe mm -hmm. they want homes. So there's a spectrum here I'm hearing on, on these dimensions, but critical things are we need one person in charge and we need each of the services to think about success beyond the delivery of the service. And we need participation and collaboration across services. Is that, yeah. am I synthesizing the recommendations in, a, in, a, in the right direction? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that Linda did, I, I don't know if we wrote about it in the book, but it is about systems and, and it is about accountability. You know, we have so much data and big data. So one of the things that Linda instituted when I, 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 by this time, left government and was running my nonprofit, and Linda was the commissioner and then the deputy mayor, she, she actually climbed the ladder that I never was able to climb. Um, but they created a scorecard that got published every quarter that ranked the performance of all the providers. And it was very public. You know, it was like seeing your team in the standings. And I'll, I'll note that the Mets are doing great and the Padres are, are they're, they're diving. But, you know, you care about that. You want to do well. And by the way, we got more money if we did well. There was, there was both a reputational ego incentive and there was a financial incentive, a small one, that you could use to invest and show appreciation to your staff and your clients for the success that you achieved. And it was public. It was accountable 
to the public, right? And so... So there's a high level of transparency, Muzzy. Absolutely. And so there was a race to the top instead of a race to the bottom. And so I think that that is important. We can do this with all sorts of systems. Um, you know, when we had one of our shelters in the... My goal was always to be in the top quartile, if not the top decile. Um, and... Um, you know, I should have wrecked when I saw that one of our shelters, can I say that? One of our shelters was in the bottom quartile and we focused on that and we turned it around and, and, and we innovated. Why is that happening? What can we do differently? And I think if that, which didn't get continued with the current mayor, because all of a sudden it's, you can't, you can't score and judge and evaluate, you know, or measure success around life-saving issues. Well, of course you can. I mean, hospitals do it all the time. So, so maybe let's go there. Um, let's go there. I'd, I'd love to sort of get a sense from you when cities, when regions, uh, when countries in some cases implement these kinds of um, programs and thinking, um, what are the outcomes when we, when we uh, get on this problem in this way? Well, the most important thing is that you don't know if you don't collect the data. And I think Muzzy just made one of the most important points here that you there you have to create accountability and you have to cre create data, right? You have to collect the data. You have to have systems to under, you have to understand what your condition is. You have to set your goals and then everybody has to be accountable and you have to be able to kind of disaggregate the accountability because this is a system of many moving parts. And so it can't just be one goal. There is, um, Almost every player um, who, who has a role at every point along the way has to have a set of metrics that they are working on and contributing toward. And a lot of times, like, you know, good intentions and good programs, but they just won't have the impact. You also have to know if things are not working so that you can go in and you can retool and you can fix whatever it is that didn't work out the way that you thought it was going to work out. And so there's um, the importance of data and sharing data and using data for accountability along the way is, is critically important. And it's not hard. You know, my, my chief operating officer says, you know, what gets measured gets done. You know, so we were measuring how many clients in our program. We run a workforce program in our shelters and we were seeing a drop in clients finding work and, and more significantly keeping work. It's not about getting there. It's about staying there. And then we started looking at the data. When were the clients most engaging with us? Where were our staff aligned? And there was a misalignment between uh, when we were deploying our staff and when we were, uh, when our clients wanted to see us. And so we shifted our staffing hours to when our clients were more accessible, more available. Again, customer service again. It's a business, not a business to make money. It's a business of service. But still, but I guess what I'm asking is, what are the outcomes? So we listen to our customer, we provide the services, we do what we think is right for our city. What you did in New York is very different, it sounds like, from, from Houston, by way of example. Uh, but in, in both cases, you did produce so some outcomes, outcomes, right? outcomes, right? The outputs yeah. we measure are, you know, do people move to housing? What, what, what percentage of the people we serve get housed? What percentage of the people we serve get healthy? If there's a health issue, a mental health issue, get, get sober. Then we look at once they get there, do they stay there? Are they retaining it? And then do they re-enter the system again, right? Because if somebody leaves and comes back, they're taking up a bed that they shouldn't have to take up because, you know, 
it, it should be few and far between that relapse and come back. Relapse does happen. And do you measure if they get they get jobs or or some other uh, a support financial support sometimes. system? Sometimes, right? Those are the things that we measure. Right? Yeah. And then are we are we moving the needle? You know, there's no absolute number, but are we continuing to make progress? Are we continuing to do better in a more effective way? Those those are all the outputs, short and long term, that we measure. But then there's a certain qualitative outcome that we're looking for. And, you know, one one anecdotal example is this, you know, client whose story I tell a lot, this guy, Stanley, who was speaking, he'd been gone several years, came back to an alumni event and started talking about his experience and the job he had, which was not as great as the job he used to have. And I was like, oh, God, where is this going? Is this going to be one of these depressing stories? And he said, you know, he, he had a job. He had gotten housed again. He was sober again. He wasn't homeless anymore. And he said, but you know, the thing that's really great about the job I have, it's not as prestigious as the job I used to have. Um, but I get to go home every night because my wife took me back and I tuck my kids in and I kiss them goodnight. And that's the real goal here, Chris, right? And Linda was talking about it before, about being compassionate. This is why. Because if we said to Stanley, it's your responsibility to get off the dole and get a job, Stanley would have told you where to go and he would have stayed on the street and kept using drugs because he didn't feel good about himself. We said to Stanley, and this is what our outreach workers do, we don't say to people who are living on the street, you don't belong here, get the hell out of here. We say, we know you want to do better. Who do you want to be? And how can we help you be that person? And what Stanley did, Stanley didn't want a job and Stanley didn't want to get sober and Stanley didn't even want to not be homeless, really. What Stanley wanted to do was be a dad again. And once we understood that that's what Stanley wanted, and there are so many Stanleys out there, and that became his goal, he wanted to be a better father to his children. Then he was motivated. It wasn't conditional. It wasn't coercive. It wasn't to stay in the nice BRC shelter. You got to do this stuff. It was, you want to be a dad again, and we're going to help you be the person you want to be. So, and I have, I have a much simpler answer which is um, the ultimate number and accountability is how many people are homeless. And the bottom line is if the number is going up, every all your good intentions and good programs aren't making a difference in terms of solving the problem. And it's why having annual street counts is important for creating accountability and watching the numbers over time. And so the interesting thing here in the U.S., for the 15, 20 years um, um, leading up to around 2015, the numbers of people who were homeless in the United States were going down pretty steadily and, and at a nice pace. And then that plateaued and has, um, has been going up before COVID hit. COVID created, we don't know because the street counts weren't able to happen for the most part. In cities that did the street count, like Houston, like New York, the numbers of homeless people went down. So those COVID policies um, had had an impact in those cities, at least. And now the fear is about moving forward. Uh, sorry to interrupt you. There. So I, I just want to make sure I understood what you said. So going down till uh, 2015, and then best you can tell, it's still early days in terms of collecting data, the policies we talked about before vis-a-vis -vis supporting uh, people experiencing homelessness during the pandemic uh, appear to have led to a further decline in the 
number of homeless in, in, in the country. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, yes. Right. So in, in the past five years, it had been going up. But then since COVID, we think based on the cities that did the count, it went down in those cities. We don't have a nationwide count, so we don't know what happened nationally. And, you know, different cities did different things. Some cities did not, you know, step in and take action. I think our we I, we think about that curve. So, right. So the going down, lots of hard work, people just like, you know, grinding it out, doing what they needed to do. Um, and then that plateaued, but then COVID brought these resources and new strategies and a new sense of urgency. And now as we look forward, it's a question of um, how much kind of backed up homelessness, housing instability do we have when the eviction moratorium is lifted? If efforts are not put in to address those fragile households, then we're gonna, we could see a real surge a real big surge in the number of people who are homeless in this country. And that's why we really urge, like now is more important than ever to like think about these strategies. What are the programs that work? What are the tools that work? What is successful collaboration and data and accountability look like? And get on it now because what the, the level of human crisis that is that could happen really could be great. Amen. And so you think that there's work to be done immediately to make sure that the decline in homelessness that we think we might have seen during COVID, A, is real and B, continues on that path because with the job loss that we saw with uh, the moratorium on uh, evictions coming off in, in, in major parts of the country, et cetera, et cetera, there's a set of factors emerging now um, that actually could cause a significant spike if we're not careful. Is that what what we're saying, Linda? A hundred percent could be a huge surge. And so what do you advise uh, mayors, uh, county councils, uh, governors, uh, prime ministers? Buy the book. Realize that you're not alone, that this is something that you can tackle. We're happy to work with you. Give us a call. Um, no, but seriously, this is, it's not something to be afraid of. It's not that third rail. Mayors have and are doing it. They're not alone. It, 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 you know, we both work for mayors. It is easy to get lost in the tunnel vision of your own city and all the drama that's going on within a 24 hour news cycle in your own city. Um, but these are not uncommon challenges. There are different strategies that work in different cities because of different uh, cultures of either different countries or different cities or different political environments. But the basic things that we talk about in the book that we've been talking about today, about a systems basis for it, about being data-driven, about having accountability, about focusing on quality and not just quantity, about looking at prevent, investing in prevention, um, and, and having an integrated, like I said, systems basis to it of accountability, those are things that will move the needle significantly, not to zero. There's no such thing as zero, um, but in a dramatic way that, that, that citizens will notice, that businesses will notice, that homeowners and residents will notice, and it, it can be done, and it is being done. So maybe let's play a little bit with data if we could. You know, when we talk about, when we hear politicians and economists and so forth talk about, for example, uh, unemployment, 
and sort of there's a level of unemployment that once you get to, we just consider it full on a full employment. I don't know what the number is. It's 2% or 3% or what, I don't know what the number is, but there's some number, right? When they say essentially at that number, everybody who wants to have a job has a job. Uh, is there the equivalent sort of here where there's maybe you'll tell me the end number of people experiencing homelessness right now in the United States and if we were to, if we were absolutely to, to do a legendary job on this, how, how low would that number be such that it would be, for all intents and purposes, as low as it's, we could get it? Mm-hmm. Functional zero is what people say. Functional zero. Yeah, functional zero. Great. Thank you. Right? And so now we, we're probably, I think the most recent count was I don't know, 550,000. I could, I, I hope I'm not too far off, but, um, you know, a half a million people have, are, um, in shelter and on the street across, um, cities across the United States. And, um, you know, it's hard to put a number, like what would, what would, a what would functional zero be? It'd be easily be a 10th of that, you know, maybe a 20th of that. So would it be 5,000 would it be 2,500, but that you know that it would it would it would be significantly significantly lower. So, so you think functional zero would be that low? Five thousand maybe across the United States of America with yeah. three. How many people are we? Three hundred and fifty million or some three hundred twenty-five million. Well, you know, and I and I suppose right. It kind of makes the it's point in time, but it does make the point like a half a million people on a base of three hundred million is um, it, it really, you know, homelessness is fairly rare. It's fairly rare, even now, even when you have a Los Angeles, even when you, you, you have, you know, a San Francisco, it's still fairly rare. And so, you know, so the, in New York City, you know, we have in terms of the ratio of number of people who are homeless compared to the population. So it's, you know, 60,000 compared to a population of, of 9 million. Right. You know, and so it's still 60,000 people. Right. It's like and 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 they, you know, while very few of those people are on the street, it's a um, um, it's a very it's a very visual problem. It's a very visible problem. And but I you know, I don't know. um, We don't we it's speculation but it it could be it could be so many fewer than it is now so we have a lot of room to improve yeah and it has as i mentioned it has it has been going down i mean we haven't reversed the progress it's it's gone from you know maybe seven hundred thousand down to to 550 and that's a big drop i think i think that's the point of the book right is yes we there there's there's a lot of room to improve but we see the strategies we see the programs in the, all the cities that we've gone to and all the cities that we've worked with I, like i said before to to leave the mayor's office in la and go see their bridge housing and say holy shit they figured it out that this moves the needle it doesn't solve the problem but it, it becomes another tool towards solving the problem and then when you have something that works you replicate it and then you complement it and then you manage it and then you track it and if you do those things and you realize that it's not a flip of a switch and it's not overnight, it happens. It is happening. And that's the point of the story. There is every reason to be hopeful and to be optimistic and to say that things are happening. And if we invest in the things that work and the people who are doing it and then support that on a national level with a national policy to make it easier 
not harder, will succeed. We can do this. It is being done. And then if I if I ask you, okay, so that's at the government level. If I say, hey, I want to be a good citizen here, how do I be a good citizen if I care about trying to get that number down from home from five hundred thousand to some minuscule minuscule number? What what do I as as an American citizen? What would you have me do? I'll go ahead. Okay, I'll go first. So the first is that if that is something that you truly care about, then to recognize that this is shared sacrifice, and we all own the responsibility, and we all should be holding our leaders accountable to have thoughtful, plausible, real strategies. And then when that strategy comes to your proverbial backyard, which is, again, something that LA has actually done very well, which is to have conversations in communities to say, we're all responsible for this. We're going to build this housing in every community. We're going to build these programs in every community because if it's always anywhere but here, well, that's nowhere. So if we really want to demand that our elected leaders do something, we need to recognize that we have to own that responsibility and that having it somewhere, even if it's where I live, is better than having it nowhere. And rather than saying, I don't want it, is to say, again, accountability. I want it, but I want it to be excellent. And I want to know that it's going to be excellent. I want to see the data that says it's excellent. And I want to know that if it isn't excellent, you're going to do something to fix it. That's our collective responsibility as citizens. Linda? You know, I would... um I would add to that to um, to say that just on an, an individual level, people want to help. There's an incredible um, compassion. Any poll that you read, you know, um, people say that they um, they care about this issue and they want to see people treated better. And so, the thing that I would really urge um, for anyone thinking about, you know, what action should they take is to support an organization, volunteer at an organization that is um, that is helping to overcome homelessness. Um, a lot of kind of self-help help actions, um, you know, well-intentioned, um, you know, volunteer um, groups wind up actually exacerbating the problem. And so it's really important to um, align yourself with the strategies of the people who are working locally, who are trying to tackle the problem and support their efforts. And then last thing I would say is, um, is, you know, kindness, you know, um, treat people, um, who are experiencing homelessness, um, with kindness because they have not experienced a lot of kindness, um, in their, certainly in their recent life. Which brings me to a very big question. It's a debate I hear often. There's a person standing on the side of a road with a sign. Do I give that person money or how do I respond to that person? Or do I? I tell you, I'll tell you what I do. Um, I, I make donations to organizations that are serving the people who are homeless. I show people where they can go to get a meal and can get a support. Personally, I don't um, give out money on the street because I am interested in um, supporting the systems that are doing everything that they can to provide the right support and the right connection and the right human contact that can bring people to a better place. And I don't want to see that, you know, my well-intentioned, um, support to them is going to wind up exacerbating their time on the street. We talk about a hand up goes farther than a handout. 
you know, if you saw somebody uh, bleeding on the street, you wouldn't give them a sandwich or a buck. You'd call a professional. You, they're, they're injured. They're in pain. They're suffering. Let me get them. Let, let, let me acknowledge that I may not alone be able to help this person as a passerby. But that there are professionals, and there are in every city. And so, if I ha- if I feel uh, my heartstrings are being tugged, looking at this person, and I feel an urge to to dig into my money clip and and pull out uh, some money, I should take that money and give it to the professionals in Santa Cruz. That would do more. Yes, or do both, but don't don't not give that person an opportunity to get the help they need. That if all you do is give someone money and walk away. You, you haven't done anything, really. Should I have some printouts in my car that have the address of, of where they could go to maybe get a meal and some shelter and, and hand them that and say, God bless you? Is that what I should do? Well, many cities do have that. Many cities do have that. And if you have time, talk. Just talk. Normally, I'm in the car, but... <laughs> All right, folks. Um, thank you so much for your incredible work. Uh, this book is fantastic. Before we wrap, is there anything else you'd like to touch on? No, this was, it's a, a, a pleasure. We, you can tell we love this. We love this issue. We love the help we're able to give. We, we love the people in cities who do this work. Um, so thank you for giving us the chance to discuss it. Yeah. And you, Chris, and we love people like you who actually want to understand and want to ask questions and appreciate its complexity and nuance. Um, but, but care enough to go deeper than just the superficial. So thank you for that opportunity. It is absolutely my pleasure. I deeply, deeply appreciate this time. I, I deeply appreciate your book. Uh, my wife, Carrie, read your book. This is an issue that uh, is important to her. And I think it's a lo- an issue that's very important to a lot of people. Uh, you know, the, the, the reasons are probably somewhat obvious, but California beach towns uh, tend to be a place of congregation for people experiencing homelessness. And, and so it's upsetting. It's really upsetting for all of the reasons you would yeah. imagine yeah. and that you know very, very well. Um, I also want to say, hey, thank you both for your public service. As somebody that's never worked in government, um, there's a lot of people in the entrepreneurial world that point fingers at people in government. Um, and, and while, of course, there's incompetence in government like there is everywhere else, uh, you two are shining examples of big hearted, uh, big brain people trying to make a difference who chose, uh, who chose a government path. And so regardless of whether people uh, uh, agree with your policies and approaches or not, the one thing that is very, very clear is uh, you're two very smart people trying to make a very big difference and, and um, bless you for that. Thank you. Well, there they are. And Linda and Muzzy's new book is out and it is called How 10 Global Cities Take On Homelessness. Also, hit the subscribe button to uh, to this uh, oddcast right now on whatever oddcast player you happen to be playing. And um, you won't miss an episode, particularly like the one I mentioned earlier with my dear friend, Jamie J, who is a U.S. vet, podcaster, author, a uh, dear friend and a guy who used to be homeless and one of the greatest guys I know. His new book is coming out very soon. It's called Quit Repeating Yourself. And um, 
I was honored that Jamie asked me to write the foreword. So uh, uh, you can pre-order it now, and uh, you're going to meet Jamie on an upcoming episode of Follow Your Difference soon. All right. We would like to thank our good friends at App, the first real relationship network. Real people, real life, in real private, with no ads. Get real today at HalloApp.com or on your favorite uh, mobile app store. If you're a business owner, you might be making running your business a lot harder than it needs to be. Don't let QuickBooks and spreadsheets slow you down anymore. It's time to upgrade to NetSuite. Visit netsuite.com slash different today. That's netsuite.com slash different for your free product tour. Legendary businesses are clearly digital businesses, and Splunk brings data to everything so that you can thrive in the digital age. Go to splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. That's splunk.com slash D2E. And my friends at Atronet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net today. And uh, my friends at Malibu Milk are the world's first whole plant organic flax milk and uh, they're the first milk company ever created by a mom visit malibu milk with a y.com today and um all right <laughs> don't forget to check out category pirates if you're like me you've done uh, dumber things with 200 bucks today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes and this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, please consult your mystic, your lawyer, your mother, your rolfer, your bartender, accountant, and psychologist before acting on any of today's information. Uh, all rights do remain uh, perturbed. And uh, just so you know, your spouse called and said it's okay. Buy anything you like. Uh, don't forget, thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. Check out Grumpy Old Geeks, his podcast. Sarah Knox and the aforementioned legendary Jamie J do uh, technical execution. They build Lockhead.com and so much more. Show notes by GM Simon. Uh, don't forget, the left lane in America is the passing lane. Thank you to all of our healthcare heroes. And in the event of a water landing, this oddcast may be used as a flotation device. Thanks, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Greg Clark, former CEO of Symantec. Sorry, Greg, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe, uh, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.